Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Alice. Uh, would you like to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3? Uh, it's page 59 in the, the Red Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. Uh, two weeks ago, we introduced this new series uh, and using the book of Exodus and the story of Moses, we plan to spend a number of Sunday nights attempting to expand and extend our, our understanding of God because God is a God who wants to be known God is a God who wants to be, as the title says, up close and personal. And so the aim of this series is to discover more about the character and nature of God, to uncover new insights and rediscover forgotten ones, and as a result of that, to kind of refresh our worship and to renew our devotion and our commitment. And so a fortnight ago, we discovered that God is faithful. Uh, he keeps his promises. So whenever God says something will happen, so for example, that the descendants of Abraham will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, whenever God promises that kind of thing, it happens. God delivers. God is true to his word. That's the kind of God he is. And that means that he is a God we can trust and we can depend on. We discovered that two weeks ago. The other thing we thought about a fortnight ago is that it is good and it is right to fear God. And if you were here this morning or down at Fane Street this morning, that was something we were thinking about as well. But, but in Exodus chapter 1, we met two midwives, Shifra and Pua, who did exactly this. They treated God with reverence and with awe and with respect and therefore, they did the right thing, or rather, they refused to do the wrong thing, even though they came under intense pressure from the most powerful man in the land. Shifra and Pua feared God more than they feared man, and as a result, God not only used them, but he blessed them, and they stand forever as an example to us with regard to what it means to fear God and do the right thing. So God is faithful and God is to be feared. That was in Exodus kind of chapter one. Now, thanks to five different women in the first two chapters of Exodus, Moses, the kind of hero of the book, arrives and he survives. God's liberator is born and lives, even though the odds are stacked heavily against him. The five women were Shifra and Pua, who refused to kill baby boys that were born to Hebrew women. The third woman who ensured the story continued was Moses' mom, a Levite, who when she gave birth to Moses, hid him for three months so that he wouldn't get chucked into the Nile. The fourth person then was Moses' sister, Miriam, who under instructions from her mum was to keep watch over her baby brother who was placed, as we all know, in a basket in the Nile, which is ironic. I'm not going to dwell on this, but it is ironic because the very place that was meant to bring death to all boys becomes the place which brings life to Moses. It's a really interesting thought. The fifth woman is the woman then who finds Moses, and that woman is Pharaoh's daughter, who after paying Miriam to look after Moses for, for a period of time, then takes Moses 
to be her own and to bring him up as she would want to bring him up. Where would we be? Where would God's story be if it wasn't for women? I'm sure I should say something more than that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Moses is then given this kind of privileged upbringing in a very special place. Now, we don't really get that from the book of Exodus, and many of you will know this, but if you look at what Stephen said about Moses just before he is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, we get a bit more of an insight into Moses' upbringing. Here's what Stephen said. He said, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for his family. That's the three months that Moses' mom hid him. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And, and love this, but again, I'm not going to dwell on this. But it says, or Stephen said, that he was powerful in speech. And yet we all know what was one of Moses' first excuses. I can't speak. And yet, what Stephen said about Moses, he was powerful in speech and action. And then he says, when Moses was 40 years old. And in a sense, that is about as much as we know about Moses' first 40 years. But then, we do know that Moses does something really stupid when he's 40. Life doesn't kind of begin, it nearly ends for him. He kills someone in cold blood. And as a result of murdering someone, he has to run for his life. And he ends up in this tiny tribal community on the east side of the Dead Sea. And he gets married, and he has a son, and he starts working for his father-in-law, minding sheep. And then another 40 years or thereabouts passes. Now, this is all in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. 80 years of his life kind of condensed into that little space. But then one day approximately the age of 80, this happens, or something like this happens. And as I say, now we're up to the beginning of Exodus chapter 3, so I think the lights are going to go out, and we're going to watch a little video. Thank you. Here I am. Take the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground.
were you? I am that I am. I don't understand. I am the god of your ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry. Stop it! Leave that man alone! So I have come down to deliver them out of slavery and bring them to a good land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And so unto Pharaoh I shall send you. Me? Who am I to lead these people? They'll never believe me. They won't even listen. I shall teach you what to say. Let my people go. But I was their enemy. I was the prince of Egypt, the son of the man who slaughtered their children. You've, you've chosen the wrong messenger. How, how can I even speak to these people? Who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Did not I? Now go! Somebody said to me at the start of the service, why can't we just watch all the rest of that film and you don't speak? But anyway, I'm not going to say who that was, nor look in their direction. <laughs> uh, but in this really dramatic and, and well-known incident, which, which captures the first 22 verses of, of Exodus chapter 3, we discover or we kind of encounter a number of things about God. And I just want to draw our attention this evening to four things that we discover about God from the first 22 verses of Exodus 3 that were kind of on, on the movie. And the first is this, that, that God is holy. Moses stumbles upon a burning desert plant, although to be more accurate, he, he stumbles on, upon a desert plant that is on fire but does not burn. And if that wasn't strange enough, the plant then becomes like a kind of Bluetooth speaker with God's voice amplified through it. Although at this stage, Moses doesn't actually know 
that it is God. He, he just hears the voice. And, and as Moses listens, and as he hears his name, and we, we read that his name was repeated twice, as Moses listens, he is then instructed to remove his sandals. Why? Because the ground upon which he stands it is holy ground. And, and holy means different or, or distinctive. And this place clearly was, and this moment clearly was. It, it demanded, it deserved to be taken seriously. This was a holy moment. But why was it a holy moment? Well, it was because God was there. This kind of holy and glorious and majestic God was at that moment present. And the result of his presence, shoes needed to come off, if for no other reason than to symbolize respect and reverence and humility and awareness. God is different. God is distinctive. He is not like us. He is, to use a technical term, God is transcendent. He, he is above. He is higher. He is independent from all others and all creation. God is unique. He is outside of space and time, and yet he created them. There is no other created thing that matches his power, and nothing else can interfere with his power. And at the foot of a mountain, stopped in his tracks by a plant that doesn't burn, we read that Moses encounters a holy God. I love what Dennis Olson writes about this. He says, the inextinguishable flame is a sign of God's awesome and powerful holiness, a fiery holiness that is both dangerous and it's attractive, it's frightening and it's comforting, it's untamed and it's reassuring. You see, the God who wants to be known, the God who is up close and personal, is a holy God, and at the very least, our shoes should come off. And I think it's interesting how that actual gesture and demonstration of reverence before a holy God is still in practice today, and yet it's primarily in practice by other religions like Islam. And at this point in the story, as the sandals come off, at least we assume the sandals come off, the text doesn't actually tell us. We assume they come off. But at this point, as the sandals come off, God reveals himself as God. He says, I am the God of your father. Or if you're looking at a particular translation, you'll see it may have been that what the voice said was, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And what happens at this moment, it says that Moses immediately hides his face because according to verse six, he's afraid to look. He's afraid to look at God, which as it turns out, is a really smart move. Because as we all know, later in Exodus, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face. You actually cannot look at me and live. No one can which is also why, according to Isaiah, that even the sinless seraphim, those amazing heavenly creatures, they actually cover their faces in the presence of a holy God. So Moses, you're right to bow your, you're right to hide your face. 
God is holy. And we cannot and we must not take his presence lightly. We cannot treat God casually as, as Tim Chester writes in a, in a volume, his volume on Exodus, which I know some of you have read or are reading. God is awful and terrible in the old meaning of those words. He evokes awe and terror. And it's really important If we are going to know and if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, it's really important that we recognize that. And it somehow seems that Moses did and therefore his shoes come off and his head is bowed. And I do want to pick up at this point just on something I said a number of years ago. It is worth remembering and we need to remember that God by his Holy Spirit is here this evening. God is present here, now. And therefore, this is holy ground, and these are holy moments. And so maybe it's worth asking the question, what do I need to take off in order to come and stand before God in humility and with reverence and respect? What do I need to take off? What do I need to remove? What do I need to shed? Pride, unconfessed sin, that unforgiving critical spirit I mentioned this morning, does that need to come off? Apathy? What about an unhelpful habit or interest or relationship? Do I need to shed that? Do I need to ditch that in order to come before a holy God? Because it could be that if we're going to hear God speak into our lives the way Moses heard God speak into his life, if we're going to encounter God afresh and worship him afresh, then maybe we do need to get rid of certain things. God is holy. He's above. He's higher. He's other than. He's transcendent. Transcendent and that, that, recognition should cause us to revere him in our worship, in our words, and with our lives. God is holy. And for those who were at church this morning, can I remind you of those sobering words from 1 Peter chapter 1, echoing Leviticus 11, where God says to us, be holy because I am holy. It's incredible. But back to Exodus 3. Because as well as discovering that God is above us, we also discover that God is among us. And that may seem like a bit of a paradox, a God who is so far away, and yet a God who is so near. But then, as we discovered in a previous Sunday night series, Paradoxology, when it comes to God's character, there are any number of paradoxes, any number of them, and that's okay. In fact, if anything, it's helpful for us to acknowledge that God's a paradox. So many paradoxes regarding the character of God. He is distant, and yet he's so near, further than the moon, closer than my skin. 
And as Moses hides his face here, God speaks again. And in verse 7, we discover, look at it with me if you have it open there before you. We discover a God who sees and a God who hears and a God who is concerned for his people. You see, God is not so above and other than that he is disconnected from his creation and his creatures. He is, as we're told here, close enough to them to see and to hear to see their misery, to hear their cries of distress and for help. And he is so close to be concerned. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He might seem far away, but he's not. He's not. He may feel as it may feel as if God has forgotten us, but he hasn't. And if you're here tonight feeling distant and dismissed, please know that God sees you. He hears your cry, your heart cry. He is concerned for you. But more than that, God comes down. And he delivers and he lifts us up. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue. This is an incredible thought. God isn't just close enough to see and to hear and to get concerned. He's also close enough to get involved in our lives and to deliver us and to lift us up. And obviously, as we think of the bigger picture, we all know this too well, because a month ago, we celebrated the fact that that God in Jesus physically came down. Emmanuel was born, God with us, to rescue us and to set us free from ultimate slavery and misery. But as we discover in Exodus chapter 3, this is the heart of God. God sees, God hears, God is concerned, but more than that, God comes down. God comes down and he delivers. He wants to be among us. And the technical term for this is that God is imminent. And so while God is far above and transcendent of this world, he's also chosen to place himself in direct connection with this world as its creator, as its sustainer, as its savior. God cares, God sees, God knows, God's concerned. God comes down, God delivers. God is among us. God is within touching distance. God genuinely is up close and personal tonight. He's above us and he's among us. Now as Moses listens to God and he hears all these truths about who God is, he probably wasn't prepared for what God said next. And so in verse 10, and we heard it in the video, So now, go, you you go, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Yes, God was going to come down. God was going to deliver. God had saw, God had heard, God was concerned. God's going to appear. But Moses, you're involved in this. Moses, I want you to be part of this. I want you to join me. I want you to work with me. And that's often the way God operates. You see, God intends for us to be part of the adventure in helping others and serving others and making a difference and sharing his story and making disciples and teaching his word and speaking up for the disadvantaged and for those who have no voices. God invites us into his story to be part of it. God sees and God hears and God's concerned and God comes down, but God uses and involves us. And so God calls to Moses, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. It's a huge calling. And then we all know what happens next. 
the objections and the excuses come. There are five to be exact, but I just want to include two tonight because they in themselves provide more about not just the character of Moses. That's not what I want to think about. They provide more insight into the character of a God. And so the first thing that Moses asks is, who am I? Who am I to do this? It sounds as if Moses at this moment in time is having a crisis of identity. Or maybe he just didn't think he was up to this. The scale of the task was massive. The people he would need to speak to were powerful and scary. And he felt out of his depth and he felt intimidated and he felt weak. But who am I is one of those big existential questions of life. And where do you go? Where do you go to find and locate your identity whenever in our culture today it seems to be up for grabs? How do you identify yourself? Well, you can identify yourself in terms of what you do. You can identify yourself in terms of where you live. You can identify yourself in terms of where you were born, who your parents are. And the other thing about identity today is it seems so fluid. You can reinvent yourself time and time again if you want to. But you know something? You see, whenever it's left up to us to answer that question, who am I? We end up being unsure, confused, or dissatisfied. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who I think I should be. And so for me, it is intriguing to hear God's answer to this question that Moses asks. Moses asks, who am I? Here's what God replies, I will be with you, which doesn't sound like an answer. And yet maybe this is the answer. Maybe Moses needed to find his identity in God and from God because as one writer has said, Moses does not need to have a higher self-esteem. He needs a greater sense of God's presence. You see, when God says in response to Moses' question, I will be with you, he's saying, do you know something, Moses? You can find your confidence. You can find your worth. You can find your sense of self in knowing that I am there with you and that I am there for you. And for us, and this is something we thought about, particularly during our recent morning series in Ephesians, we find our identity, where we find our identity in God. In a God who says, you are my child. I have adopted you as my son and my daughter. I have forgiven you. I have saved you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I have seated you with Christ in heavenly places. You are a work of art. All those things that we discovered in our series in Ephesians. That is your identity. And where do you find that identity? You find it in God. And so here as Moses asks that big question. It's a fair question. It's an understandable question. We discover an answer that further reveals what God is like. He is the one who gives us our true ID. He is the one who's with us and therefore establishes who we truly are. And the second thing then Moses asks, after he's asked, who am I? And he's heard God's answer, then we all know the next question is, well, who are you? Like whenever I go or if I go, who am I going to say has sent me? And God's response to that is legendary as he reveals his name to Moses. And again, we all know it. Although it still leaves so many of us scratching our heads, it's notoriously ambiguous, it's mysterious. And it's frustrating. I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. And I always find it interesting that Moses doesn't query this. 
or at least there's no record of Moses asking, here, God, hang on a minute, do you want to explain that? Do you want to expand on that for me? Moses does come back at God, yes, but he doesn't come back at God asking him to explain this ambiguous, frustrating title. He comes back at God saying, well, listen, what, what happens if people don't believe me? Moses, for now, seems content with the name. But let me give you three ways that this name is often understood. And I know you could spend an entire sermon or an entire evening on this, but let me just give you three ways this can be understood and that this doesn't answer the question in any shape or form. I have always been who I have always been. You see, God's already said to, to, to Moses, Moses, do you know something? I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And you know something? I'm still that God. I'm still that God. I haven't changed. I don't change. I'm consistent. I'm still that God. Secondly, I will be who I will be is another way of understanding this, which means and implies that God is known through his actions. I will be who I will be. I'll be known through what I have done and what I will do. And so, for example, we know that in Exodus 15, on the far side of the Red Sea incident, Moses sings. And what does Moses sing? He sings about I am being his strength, being his defense, being his salvation, being his warrior. In other words, I am is known through what I am does. He's known through his actions. And then finally, there is just that I am who I am, or in the King James Version that we saw on the screen, I am that I am, which reveals, if nothing else, that God is self-defining rather than defined by others. And I fully appreciate it's mind-blowing, it's hard to kneel down, it's hard to get the grips with, but then again, the moment you think you can fully explain God or neatly or simply define him is the moment you lose something of his otherness. And so from Exodus chapter 3, we may discover quite a lot about Moses, but we certainly discover a lot about God, a God who wants to be known, a God who is up close and personal. And so here's the four things I just want you to take away tonight. God is above us. He is holy. He is transcendent. God is among us. He sees. He hears. He cares. He comes. He delivers. He is with us. And we find our identity in him. And he is the great uh, I am. And so may our understanding of God continually expand and extend and enlarge and increase. And as a result, may our worship intensify and may our relationship with this God who longs to be known and who is up close and personal, may it grow deeper.